you're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Episode 106, in which this happens. Hello and welcome. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Eakin. And this is The Film Show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks. And in, just in case you not noticed, we're your regular film geeks. Andy. I'm very regular at the moment. <laughs> Are you? And more <laughs> than I can dream of, let alone need to know. How are you? I'm, I'm achy and paining. Before I get into why I'm achy and paining, just a quick mention to those of us who do listen to us via a podcast. If you've got a Samsung device, a Samsung phone, or a Samsung tablet, swipe right and go into the free section. Go to Samsung Podcasts, search for us in there, add us to your list, direct to your phone every week. No more hassle with other services. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I didn't know that existed. Neither did I until about two weeks ago when I swiped right by accident and went, oh, oh, there's a podcast section. How do I get listed on here? So I've worked it out so that anyone with a Samsung, you can have it direct to your mobile device so that every Wednesday when it goes out, there it is for you. But anyway, why am I all aches and pains? Why are you all aches and pains? Um, as you will have noticed, because you paid a visit to the cinema yesterday, we've I got did. a rather... We've got a rather glorious looking standee down in our entrance. And impressive it is. And if you go to Andy's uh, Film File Twitter account, you'll see an image of said standee. It's huge. It's for the Batman. It's seven foot tall and about 20 foot long. And when it arrived on Friday at about two o'clock-ish, I brought it in from um, downstairs, took it down to the main entrance, thought, I'm going to put this together, opened the box up and regretted it within five minutes of trying to sort out all the pieces. It's huge. All the parts had to be put together separately for all the different letters. There's bolts and nuts and everything holding everything together. And it took me seven hours to I set think up. Because what you didn't realise, Andy, it's part of the new IKEA Dark Knight series um, <laughs> of furniture. That, um, of course, that we got to the end and there was a bolt missing. Yeah, I was feeling the strain towards the end of it. I was like, you know, blood, sweat and tears and loads of paper cuts on my hand went into putting that thing together. But it looks great. And by the end of the shift, I was like, yeah, I'm proud of what I've done. And then I got on the bus to get home. And then getting off the bus <laughs> was a struggle because sitting down after that, all my muscles seized up. Got home, passed out, woke up after a glorious night's sleep, finding myself unable to move because... Every muscle in my body was screaming in agony. My calves, my thighs, my glutes, my back, my shoulder, my arms. Because like, I had to constantly crouch down to bolt things, then stand up, crouch down, stand up. I must have done about 7,000 squats that day. And I'm telling you, my, my, my butt cheeks are the firmest they've been since I was 18 years old. That's I'll, how I'll much exercise I have. for that one. I'm not coming around to check your butt cheeks. It's, for, it's uh, one of them where you look at yourself in the mirror and go, hey, that's looking good. Um, <laughs> is it Captain America's ass? Can I? <laughs> it, it's, it, it's not quite that good. I mean, that that is America's ass. But yes, I had to go to work yesterday and I was struggling. And I kept making the mistake of offering to help clean the screens. It's like, oh, a busy screen coming out. So I'll go and help clean. And then it's going around. It's like, oh, someone's put something on the floor. Ow, ow, ow. Oh. Managed to get through the shift. Still in agony today. I was struggling. However, yeah, you know this because I, I regaled you with it last night, but I'm going to regale our podcast listeners. The night was made so much better by the fact that three members of one of my favorite bands came in to watch a film. 
And who are the said band, Andy? So uh, I've mentioned the band before, Sophie and the Giants, because I've seen them live a couple of times and put them as a neat thing. And I've also pointed people in the music. Uh, but Toby, Antonia and Chris from the band came in to watch Jackass. Uh, I kind of recognised Toby as going, going in, but it's one of those where it's like, is it him? I'm not sure. I'll look weird if I go over and say hello and find, and find out that it's not. But it was when they came out and I saw Toby and Antonia together. And then Chris came back from like using the toilets. So I was like, there's three of them there. There's no way I've got this confused. That's definitely them. So I went over and introduced myself and just thanked them for thanked them for the music that they've given us. Uh, pointed out that I'm a huge fan and have been a fan since more or less when they started off. And thanked them particularly. And this is what I wanted to do. And I did the same with the Rev when Rev from Reverend the Makers came in. I wanted to thank for the, the free broadcasts that they did over the internet during lockdown because all the bands and musicians and artists who did these free streams of live music to keep people entertained, that broke the tedium of lockdown for a lot of us. It was great to watch it. So it was just a great chance to say, because even though like I've sent them a message online saying, oh, absolutely marvellous, thanks for that. Saying it to their face meant so much more from my point of view. And I could see the, like they received it in the way that it was because it was like, you really helped keep us sane. People like yourselves who did free broadcasts of your music, as well as showing off some of your new music. It was something for us to latch onto to give us hope for the end of the lockdown. And it was great. They're, they're a, lovely, a lovely group to chat to. Um, they recognised me once I pointed out that I was the person who had a Bulldog t-shirt at their last gig uh, because they made a big thing of it when I went to the merchandise stand that they only made about 20 of them. And, right. and they were absolutely amazed that someone's, someone's still got one. I was like, of course I've still got one. I don't throw anything away. Um, <laughs> I've been to your house, that's true. It made my evening. It's one of those moments that makes me love my job so much more because over the years I've met various celebrities through them coming in to watch films, people who I've, I've idolised and I, I, I respect and I look up to, and getting a chance to see them. And hearing them say how much they love the place that I work at also means a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. Then, then saying that they come to the our cinema because they find it the best cinema in Sheffield, that means a lot. Yeah. So and it's all part it's, of the uh, and all that's part of the evening out, isn't it? Enjoying where you go. It's not just going to go and see a film. It's part yeah. of uh, the environment. It, means a lot. Part of your evening's pleasure. Oh, yeah. I've had nothing as exciting over the last week. Um, well, you did get to go to the cinema for the first time in years. I did. It's the first <laughs> time I think I can't work out if it's the first time I've been this year. Actually, sat in. It's been a been a crazy start to the year getting covid again that everything seems as though uh we've hit the ground running basically yeah. and uh it's just been been really really an odd start to the year it seems christmas is a um feels like a millennia away but we've always got the show and that's the most important thing and talking of the show what's on this week's show we're going to be doing a deep dive into true romance the tony scott quentin tarantino Collaboration. Classic. Absolute classic. Yeah. Um, I think we've already given part of the game away. Um, Maybe we should throw them off the scent and I'll say I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> we've got reviews of. I'm going to be covering two cinema releases this week, which is Moonfall and Jackass Forever. Two films that I don't think Lee's got any interest in seeing. <laughs> yeah, you know me so well. And I'm going to be talking about stuff that's landed on TV Midnight Mass and Reacher. I'll be throwing in a few of the other TV shows that I've been recommending over the previous weeks as things to look out for. And of course, before any of that, we've got, well, could quite easily be your favourite spot in the show, because it's ours, and that is <laughs> the news. So, two new contenders 
for that number one spot. But will the webhead keep his place? We're talking jackass. We're talking moonfall. Andy, what are the figures? So in the US this weekend, jackass shot straight to the top spot in the US, taking $23 million, which already puts it into profit on approximately a $10 million budget after just one weekend. Moonfall came into second, taking just under $10 million on its opening weekend. It cost $140 million to make. This isn't going to end well at all. No Way Home finally moves its way down the table a bit, taking third place. It's now taken $748 million US dollars to date and $1.77 billion worldwide. Uh, Scream is in fourth place and Sing 2 continues to bring in audiences, holding on to the fifth place. Over in the UK, however, Sing 2 is still the top film for the second weekend with another 5.1 million haul this weekend. Jackass Forever managed to get into second place with 2.1 million. Shows the difference in the audience levels. But it might be a, a large difference between the top spot and second place. But that was still the highest opening weekend in the UK for any of the Jackass movies. Belfast continues to show that all those people who say that only blockbusters do well at the box office, no one wants to go and see normal films or anything serious, shows that those people are wrong because it holds third place this week taking another 1.5 million for a total of 9 million so far in the UK. No Way Home takes fourth place and Moonfall crept into fifth place. It's not looking all that well for Moonfall's prospects. You know, Moonfall hasn't been tracking well and with and, and I'm you know we're going to give space for your review but generally the reviews have been not only poor but but absolutely devastating a bit like the film itself. Um, but we're going to talk about that later. And in other news, that was a nice segue. And in other news, what we got? Well, even better segue. Uh, well, Moonfall itself, you might have seen Roland Emmerich's uh, publicity tour where we've seen him talk about the current state of the cinema blockbuster. Yeah, he's a fine one to talk. <laughs> yeah. To say that. I mean, in his words, naturally, Marvel and DC Comics and Star Wars have pretty much taken over. It's ruining our industry a little bit because no one does, nobody does anything original anymore, which shows me that he really doesn't watch the Marvel, DC or Star Wars films because each of them does something original within. Or his own the film. Framework. <laughs> well, <laughs> he said you should make bold new movies and then cites Christopher Nolan because he can't cite himself, let's be honest. And I think Christopher Nolan is master of that. He's someone who can make movies about whatever he wants. I have it a little bit harder. Maybe if you're a better filmmaker, mate. Uh, but I still have a big enough name, especially when it's a disaster movie or has some sort of disaster theme. Mm, disaster is definitely the, the word that I'll use with regards to Moonfall. He does seem as this generation's Irwin Allen, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, it's like for someone like him to come out with like a, a bold statement about originality, it's like, really, mate, you, you, you're really, really not the person who should be saying this. You can find out exactly how well those words hold up when I talk talk about moonfall later on but mm, spoiler alert don't hold up well uh, but also related to him we were talking about tracking of box office figures have you seen the current tracking on the batman tickets no well with the the u.s projections are saying that they're expecting somewhere between 135 to 185 million dollar opening weekend wow which to give some context to that 
The Dark Knight made $160 million over its opening weekend, which means that there's a lot of expectation on this new outing of the bat. It could do better than The Dark Knight at this point in time. We'll, we'll get a better idea of the tracking probably by the end of next week as you get closer to the release date. You start to know that, okay, all of these people are pre-booked. There's, this is where it's going to come through. Uh, the film is already planning at least two spin-off series for HBO Max. And there's also talks about follow-up films circulating around. So Warners are putting everything behind this. I mean, the standee that they got me to put up and uh, break my back <laughs> doing uh, shows how much they're throwing at it to really promote it. But it looks like they're, they're op- very optimistic that it's going to see the same similar kind of numbers to maybe what Spidey No Way Home has done. Yeah, well, you know, Batman's never failed. You know, people talk about the Joel Schumacher films being disasters. They weren't necessarily disasters at the box office. They may have no. been disasters critically, but they still did well. I mean, they rebooted it with, with Nolan's take on it because of the, the critical reception. If it had been yeah. better received, uh, I know it took, a, it took a dive in figures comparatively, but it wasn't a failure. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, of Batman and Robin. Just wasn't well liked. So it's Batman is one of those. They do say that the the bat symbol is the most recognizable uh, iconic logo in the world. So you know that and Superman and and uh, there's an awful lot of expectation to do with Batman. And we um, I think there's a lot of interest in this particular Batman and this particular take because we've not been inundated. With, with lots and lots of footage. And the trailers are, are, are quite mysterious and giving bits and pieces away. So I, I think there is that anticipation for it. And I think people are under, uh, understandably interested to see how, how Patterson will pull it off. He's, a, he's an intense actor uh, and see what he yeah. brings to it. And he's also a younger actor than we've seen before taking over uh, the Batman role. Christian Bale, yes, he, he, he was a younger actor, but he, he wasn't as well-known. He within most box office circles. He was a yeah. a well-known actor, but he wasn't a box office phenomenon, as, as you know, Patterson was with uh, with Twilight. So interesting yeah. days. I'm, I'm keen to see it. And also with the, you know, the super long running time, you know, is, is that going to factor into uh, the effects on box office? It's, you know, fingers crossed it's going to do well or fingers crossed it's going to be a great movie. Interestingly enough, I, I, I with, with The Child, did a bit of a catch up on the... Um, Last Planet of the Apes movies, and, and especially the Matt Reeves movies, where he has mm. a very distinctive style and a very distinctive look. And he's a, even though he's great at action, he's, he's quite languid. He, he takes his time. He doesn't rush it. Yeah. So, you know, he's, he's all about the character moments as, as much as he is about doing interesting ways of, of doing the action sequences. So, yeah, jury's out until we see it. Only got a few weeks to go. So some good news and some bad news on the streaming front. So the good news, on Netflix, we've all got those shows that we started watching. They didn't resonate with us, but we keep getting reminded about them thanks to them being stuck in our keep watching list. Well, Netflix have finally given us the option to remove such junk from the list. It's getting (laughs) rolled out to apps at the moment. And when you go onto the show details with the more info, there'll be the option now, if you scroll down, remove from continue watching option. So every one of those shows that either... You gave up after three episodes, or your partner accidentally <laughs> your partner or child accidentally used your settings yeah, and you suddenly got, you know, 
<laughs> episodes of Emily in Paris. No, Pokemon. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, those kind of tragedies destroy your profile. You start getting suggestions yeah. for things that you don't want. So Absolutely. removing them from the continue watching will also remove your interest from those shows. So you won't get recommendations linked to those shows, which is another key thing. It also helps that if you're one of these weird people who goes onto Netflix and uses that randomly show me something that from my watch list you're not just going to suddenly see something that you didn't want to watch randomly or not there's some some poor choices have all have been made by all of us at some point <laughs> all they need to do now is uh sort out giving me some time to actually find my remote control at the end of an episode to stop it starting <laughs> the next episode because that would be grand because literally as soon as it comes up to the five second countdown I'm like where's where's the remote gone no uh but yeah that's great news that they're adding these kind of Ways to refine your watch lists and your watch histories. Uh, the bad news that I want to talk about, well, particularly for the US, because there's been nothing for the UK at this point in time, Amazon Prime are set to raise their price for the first time in four years. Yes, in the US, that. it's going to rise by 17% on the subscriptions. Um, for the UK, they've, they've said, no, the price change only applies to the US, but we do keep it on constant review and we've got nothing to announce at this time. But I think it's only a matter of time because we've had a really good deal on it in the UK for the past well, I think I've been paying £79 for five years now. Yeah, yeah, it's about that. I mean, Disney's gone up. Disney Plus has gone up. Um, Netflix had a little rise last year. I mean, inevitably, with over the next year, when we're going to start tightening our belts, yep. you know, it, it could make a difference to subscribers. That's why I think that they've not decided to increase the prices in the UK, because, you know, us in the UK, for those elsewhere in the world, we are now facing our fuel bills rising by almost 60% over the next year, which is going to be a huge charge. And like you say, we'll have to tighten our belts. If Amazon decide to up their price at this point in time, most people are going to go, well, it's either paying, paying to heat my house or watching TV. So I guess I'm going to cancel my TV. Yeah, yeah, something's going to give. One of the channels is going to go. And I and I worry for things like BritBox, which I know has is, is become established and well-established, but yeah. it's, not, it's not huge in the public consciousness. There are those who like it, like yourself, who, who yeah. triumph it every I, time. I love the nostalgia of it. I mean, they're adding the professionals this week, so whoa. <laughs> but I think some of those channels are going to go. Um, Apple have done an interesting thing where you can basically, if you've got an Apple account, you've got more than one account, you can, it's known as Apple One, you put all your accounts into this, and it basically brings the price down. So instead of going, you're paying for Apple Music as I do and yeah. uh, uh, Apple TV, you put it all into Apple One. You get a bundle package. consolidates into one package uh, and it makes it sort of three or four pounds cheaper, which is which is a, a benefit because I don't use Apple TV as much as I'd like. Yeah. And we talked about the reasons why that it's 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 quality instead, instead of the quantity. But, you know, I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that uh, is it, quite a neat idea. And I think, other providers will have to find some way because I do think it's going to be tough for 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 folks, including including ourselves. Uh, we've got a couple of biopics in the pipeline. What, what um, both of which I'm quite excited about. So the Keith Moon biopic. Oh yeah, I saw that mentioned. The filming is due to start in June. This is the biopic about. Well, if you don't know who Keith Moon is, you know he's only the legendary drummer of the Who, one of the most legendary acts of all time. Uh, the the film is currently titled The Real Me. And former band members Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend are executive producing with Paul Whittington, from the, who helmed The Crown, is helming this. And a script by Jeff Pope, who gave us the rather decent Philomena. Mm, yeah, good film. Great film, in fact. So some decent names behind that. And it's an interesting, yeah, Keith Moon's life story has got to give us something interesting and juicy to watch. I mean, the guy was notorious 
I'm, the, I'm looking forward to that. The term rock and roll legend was created for Keith Moon. You know, the 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 stuff that he got into, the pranks, you know, the the classic rock and roll, driving a Rolls Royce into a, <laughs> into a, uh, into a swimming pool. <laughs> I once heard a, a story, a, a friend of mine's father was a, a, a famous rock star, and she told me a story that they were out with Keith Moon and he went, one night they were out in a pub and he, and he, he said something along the lines of, and I, and I may have misquoted it, but I, I fancy a zebra. And they went out and bought a zebra. And sort of like two o'clock in the morning, so he could take it back to his house. I mean, why not? Another biopic, which I'm definitely interested in. Uh, this is the one which is going to star Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Chloe Grace Moretz as cult leader Jim Jones and survivor mm. Deborah Layton, uh, titled White Knight. Now, if you don't know who Jim Jones was, look up the Jonestown Massacre, 1978, and read about the events around that. He was a very influential Christian spokesperson who built his own remote commune, which he named Jonestown, attracted thousands of followers to live there, and it led to the deaths of 918 commune members, 204 of them children. The term, don't drink the Kool-Aid, comes from All that. stems from that, yeah. Uh, Anne Sawiski, who gave us a very British scandal, is directing and shooting his set for spring. It's a very interesting story, such an interesting story, that there's two versions of it in production, because there's that one, and there's also MGM working on another one with Leonardo DiCaprio in the lead role. Okay. It's going to be one of those competing. Yeah. Which one will get out first? I don't know. But yeah, DiCaprio or Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, I don't want Tough to make choice. that choice. I don't want to choose. Have you seen, talking of biopics, uh, landed this week the first teaser trailer for the miniseries about how The Godfather came to be in a show called The Offer? So it tells the story of Francis Ford Coppola's classic tale of family crime and death. Uh, and ambition, but told from the production point of view. Uh, worth checking out that teaser. I'm a big fan of Robert Evans's book, The Kids' Days in the Picture. Uh, so much so, and this is a call out to listeners, I used to have the talking book by Robert Evans, which is one of the best talking books because of Robert Evans's voice. Uh, and he talks a great deal about uh, the Godfather. He also talks about Rosemary's Baby and and yeah. and, and and his career. It's a fantastic book, and, and the talking book is is brilliant, uh, a, a must have. But so I'm interested. I'm always interested in in Robert Evans. Got saw Robert Evans in uh, when I was at Cannes one year, trying to get a movie off the ground. And uh, even then, as a, a an older, much older man, he was. You know, some people have that sort of star quality and just mm. that, that legend around them. And and it was Robert Evans. I was starstruck not often in my life i've been starstruck and had a chance to meet a lot of my heroes but i was starstruck when i saw robert evans and kind of sticking with biographies uh, spielberg's semi-autobiographical project the fablemans which is already in post-production has now landed an additional member of the cast in an unknown role now we already know that the cast for this is looking great michelle williams seth rogan paul dano julia butters and uh, the newcomer gabrielle labelle and it's going to be drawing from Spielberg's time growing up in Arizona. But a new member to the cast being added this late in the stage is none other than David Lynch. Well, we know David Lynch has moved into acting on even outside of his own projects a couple of times. Yeah, he started to pop up a good bit. But this is the first time that David Lynch and Spielberg have collaborated on anything. And th these are guys who came from the same era of the 70s getting their introduction to film. But they both went in very different equally genius directions. So it's going to be interesting to see what Lynch's presence is going to bring 
to Spielberg's backstory, basically. Interestingly enough, you mentioned that I'd gone to the cinema. I went to see Belfast last night, Kenneth Branagh's. A similar sort of movie to what it sounds like that um, Spielberg's doing with this, you know, an insight into his own life told from a, a, a fictional point of view. I can see some sort of close close kind of resemblance between the two projects. Uh, mm. I, I thought Belfast, by the way, was, was stunning. Beautiful use of black and white. My era, even I was slightly younger, that I recognised certain points of just of, of growing up, being a kid like that. It was, it was. I found it very, very touching. Um, a bit episodic, uh, a bit light, but um, but very, very moving and uh, um, beautifully, beautifully told. Anyway, carry on, Andy. Um, have you seen that Showtime are working on a TV series version of The Man Who Fell to Earth? Yeah, with interesting casting. Not going for a kind of a Bowie clone, but for going some going somewhere with an actor who has his own kind of uh, enigmatic nature. Yep. The role of Thomas Newton that was played by Bowie in the film version is now going to be portrayed by Bill Nye in this new adaptation, which is inspired more by the novel, but also drawing upon the film. This series will introduce a new alien named Faraday, who's going to be played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, who's always worth watching on screen. Yes. And he, arri- he arrives at Earth at a turning point for human evolution and must confront his own past to determine our future. Meanwhile, Nye's Newton, who was the main character in the novel and the original film, is now just the first alien to have arrived on Earth almost 40 years ago. And he's been alone and desperate for all these years, trapped within humanity. So he summons Faraday to complete his original mission. But his long time being marooned with humans has possibly affected his sanity. The co-stars lined up in this, Naomi Harris, Rob Delaney, Kate Mulgrew, Sonia Cassidy, Jimmy Simpson. I mean, these are some great names yeah. that they're stockpiling into here. It's it's currently rumoured to be running between six to ten episodes once the series goes for like full production. I'm interested with it. Yeah. You know, this is not the first time either that they've tried to do uh, A Man Who Fell to a TV series. The, there was an 80s version with an actor called Louis Smith, who incidentally was in uh, Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> <laughs> we will get round to watching that. We will. <laughs> It'll get added onto a deep dive just to give me an excuse to watch it, because you go on about it every other episode. <laughs> Everything always connects to Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> <laughs> this film this has got the potential to really disappoint me when we finally watch it now <laughs> i know that's why i don't want you to see it to to some extent now another tv series that we're going to be keeping an eye out for as it goes further into production and talking andy of other tv series that we are interested yes. in and this has been muted as a film many many years ago which kind of led us into the jj abraham star trek which is star trek starfleet academy so it's officially now in the works as a TV series. So there was a long gestating project during the Shatner Leonard Nimoy run of the Star Trek films that they were going to go back and do a movie called Star Trek Starfleet Academy, which would detail Kirk and Spock's first meeting. That idea got knocked around and then Shatner and Nimoy came back and they were really against it. Then there was another version in between when Star Trek went out of the cinema after the uh, Next Generation movies. And to some extent, everybody thought that's what what JJ was going to do with it. Uh, but, but funny enough, he does a, a three years later or five years later uh, bit within the movie after he joined Starfleet, which kind of <laughs> skipped the Starfleet <laughs> Academy bit. But it's been talked about for, you know, nigh on 30 years as an idea. Anyway, now it's a TV series. I'm finding it interesting with the current 
era of Star Trek that we are getting to see past and future aspects of the Federation timeline. Because whilst Star Trek Discovery started off set before classic Trek, it's now moved ahead hundreds of years to show us where the Federation would be after multiple events have taken place. So it's given the fans something that they've been wanting for a while for moving forward with Trek. Whilst at the same time, we've got... um, Yeah, we've got Strange New World, haven't we? Which is the Christopher Pike stories, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. Which is going to give us that classic Trek feel again. Yeah, um, whether we get it in the UK, I don't know. That's the other thing. Well, they're expecting to finally roll out the um, their own streaming service by that point in time, which is where they're going to dump all of their Star Trek projects. But we've also got Picard running, which Amazon is still going to be showing season two, apparently. Yeah, I heard that. Which is giving us something for the next generation era. So that they're really giving us a chance to explore every aspect of Trek history. And yes, the, the toxic fan base out there are saying, this isn't proper Trek because it's too woke. They've clearly never watched an episode never seen of Star, Star Trek. Trek. Never seen it, clearly. Oh, they're constantly talking about race issues. Have you never seen Let That Be Your Last, last Battlefield? Yeah. That's the most on-the-nose tackle of race <laughs> issues that there's ever been in TV history. But no, you forget that because you, you forget how Trek pushed the boundaries. It confronted social issues First iteration constantly. Is. There you go. Yeah, but everyone just like, dismisses that and pretends that it's only modern Trek that is doing all these issues. Ah, you really, that portion of the fan base need to just disappear. Jump yourself into a transporter and have a malfunction. I don't care. <laughs> Moving away from Star Trek, let's move on to Marvel. Uh, Sony's Marvel in particular were in the Spider-related spin-off movies. We've now got Dakota Johnson lined up to play Madam Web. Yeah, who was originally... Uh, a frail old lady in the first comics I read when she first appeared. Yeah, the Cassandra Wait, Webb character, the original Madam Web, was normally depicted as a blind, paralyzed old woman in a web machine that keeps her alive. Doesn't quite sound like Dakota for some reason. <laughs> so unless they're doing a, a younger origin story of that character, I more suspect that they might be going down the Julia Carpenter Spider-Woman aspect, that she will be confronted by an older Madam Web and granted the abilities of Webb so that she can become the new Madam Webb. That's how I can envisage it, because I can't really see her as a frail old woman in a web. No, it's not a character I'm overly familiar with. I I, I don't know much about the um, the second uh, incarnation of the character, the one that you mentioned. I only really know the original Madam Webb. Well, the Julia Carpenter Spider-Woman was the one which inspired the black Spidey costume. Right. Because she was in the Secret Wars era, and that's where that inspiration came from. But in recent years, when they've been doing all the Spider-Verse stuff in the comics, the original Madam Web was dying. And so she coached and trained Julia Carpenter to be the new Madam Web and then blessed her with her psychic abilities. Uh, Basically, for those who don't know and think that I'm wondering what gibberish I'm talking, Madam Web with her psychic abilities can see the futures but particularly the futures of Spider-related totem characters. So Spider-Man, Miles Morales, all the characters that are linked to the Spider, she can see where their web strands will go. However, she can also detect when things are broken and starts to try to put things into place and plays all the Spider entities as pawns to try to repair the damage done to the multiverse. It's a very interesting character. There's a lot of potential, but... Is it a character that needs a film of their own? I don't know. It's more a support character. 
and also I think it could work as a series, but you know, it's up to Sony. We've got, got no say. Um, Sony have still got to establish a credible spider verse, even though, you know, Venom has done reasonably well. It's not done the big guns yet. Mobius is next. Uh, I think Mobius has, has missed its window opportunity. Yeah. I think uh, by the time it comes out, it's going to feel old news. But we'll see. Um, talking to Marvel, yep. uh, we are very much looking forward to Moon Knight, which is just over a month away. But it seems, according to the star, that it's only going to be a limited series and the idea of a second season might be off the table. Yeah, I, I saw that. I, I, I don't know if this is just deliberately to try to undersell something and then they'll suddenly turn around and say, oh, now we've got a second season and everyone gets excited. I don't know. Because we've seen this before with other Marvel shows that they're like, oh, this is just a one-off. And then as soon as it does well, it's like, hey, we fooled you. We are actually thinking about the second season. Well, you think there was only going to be one season of uh, uh, One Division, yep. So um, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe the way that the character is going to be used elsewhere. Who knows? Pure speculation at this point. Scream 6 has officially been ordered and is set to shoot this summer. Well, you know, uh, going back to Roland Emmerich, of course, other films other than superhero movies don't do well, but clearly Scream <laughs> did. Yep, Scream 5 has already made over 100 million worldwide, which is considered a great success. And so the same team of Matt Bettinelli Open and Tyler Gillett are returning to direct, and James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick are set to write again. So I'm definitely in, because these are all the guys who I was in on this last Scream film, purely because they all worked on Ready or Not, which was one of my gems. Yeah, you loved it. I've still yet to see it. I'm waiting for it to land on streaming. So they're sticking around to do a sequel to their requel of the sequels, if that makes sense. That makes sense. (laughs) Uh, Ross and Marshall Thurber is to oversee uh, Dungeons and Dragons TV series. Uh, If you recognise the name, Ross and Marshall Thurber brought us uh, Red Notice and Dodgeball. It's an interesting choice. I can take or leave his work, but it's got Dungeons and Dragons in there, so that's it, I'm in. We hinted at this in last week's show that we should talk about, and I think we should do it briefly because we could spend hours on it, that Joss Whedon interview. Yes. I think both of us got a lot of thoughts on it. So basically, Joss Whedon came out of the cold to give an interview that everyone thought was going to be his getting out of director, writer, producer jail and uh, and making amends to the industry. But the interview went in a very, very different way. I've heard lots of takes on this. Having read the full interview, I don't think it's... it's I was going to say, I don't think it's, it's going to uh, repair his career, but I know what producer and director jail looks like. And I think eventually everybody yeah. kind of climbs out of it. I think a lot of people focused on just the few paragraphs which were to do with uh, Justice League and his relationship. I think clearly the man has an ego and um, that came across. I thought some of it was uh, he maybe should have pulled back, but it was an interesting read. But I I think people have read an awful lot into it that wasn't there as much as what was said. The interesting thing about it is that early in the interview, pretty much at the start of it, he says... And to quote him, I'm terrified of every word that comes out of my mouth because everything gets dissected. And the response to the interview shows exactly why. Uh, You can't help wonder, I mean, anyone who's ever read any interviews with Joss Whedon or seen any interviews with him or seen any of behind the scenes stuff will know that he had a very dry, sarcastic kind of humor. And there's a, a, I, when I read through the whole, 
the whole Vulture article. I read it remembering that Joss Whedon can sometimes come across as flippant, but he's just, it's his sarcastic wit. And maybe some of the statements that are being savaged online are being taken out of context because people are forgetting that his style of wit. However, maybe this was not the time for Joss to have that sarcastic wit. And he's not done himself any favours in answering questions in such a flippant, dismissive and somewhat arrogant manner. Uh, one aspect of the interview that many are focused on is that he mentioned, uh, there's a mention of him calling his mother sexy. And people are going, what a creepy thing to say about your mother. Now, this was actually said in a 2006 speech that he gave yeah. when he called his mother sexy. It was a speech on feminism that he was applauded for worldwide. And people say, oh, yeah, brave. Oh, fantastic. A man who supports feminism. Oh, he calls his mother sexy because she was such a powerful inspiration to him. But the article writer for Vulture has inserted that one in. And I feel that there's some manipulation by the writer of the article here in order to generate some traffic on it by having these buzz things. Because people focusing on that are missing the fact that he said in this recent interview that he refers to her as a remarkable woman and an inspiring person. But sometimes those are hard people to be raised by. And it's it's people are focusing on the old stuff that yeah. they were fine with before, but ignoring how he's reapproaching it these days. The article does seem to be geared towards trying to make him out to be bad. And I do wonder how much manipulation was done. I mean, does it really need to mention every time he goes to the toilet? It's as though they're mentioning it to try to suggest that he's trying to dart away from being asked serious questions. But there's no necessity for it. You know, we've, we've talked about it before. I think he's an amazingly talented writer. I think he's a pretty good director. You know, the guy brought us the Avengers. Come on. Yeah. But sometimes you just got to distance yourself from art, from the person. You know, you're not everybody in the industry who you like, whose work you like, is, is going to be an, an absolutely likable person. That the, the two don't don't go together. You know, you talk about some of the great actors of our time and a Apparently, they're dreadful human beings. Does it stop you liking their work? No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, does he have an ego? Uh, have you been into, into the film and TV <laughs> industry? Blimey, it's working in the music industry. It's full of it. He, he admits at one point in the interview that he's like, because his childhood as a shy and effeminate boy, he was the victim of bullying, which has left him suffering from complex post-traumatic stress disorder which leads to relationship problems and a self-destructive behavior. So that he's kind of like trying to excuse his actions on sets. And he, he, he doesn't shirk away from saying, yes, on the set of Buffy with the young actors, I did get frustrated a lot. And like, there was a lot of like anger at the time. And sometimes it was misdirected. He yelled. Sometimes you had to yell. Um, but he was also very praising of Charisma Carpenter herself, even though they had conflicts because she yeah, apparently halfway through shooting one episode, I remember reading this years ago, that she had a haircut halfway through an episode. So they had to reshoot everything around the fact that she changed her hair. And that was part of her trying to establish her power authority. And I think it was a clash of personalities. But it's like I say, the manner in which he's responded to the allegations in this interview. And I do urge people to read the full interview because yeah. you get a lot of context from it don't just go by whatever twitter post you've seen which has only given you like four sentences worth and go oh what a horrible man because this is a huge interview there's a lot to dissect in there but he's not done himself favors in the way that he's answered the allegations he's dismissed them he said that some of them don't he doesn't even remember happening um he declared a lot of them as false or he said that it's just um that's one person's point of view it's not a good sign 
the way that he's answering. Like I say, whether it, it was just his sarcastic wit trying to downplay things, maybe it was. But now's not the time to be like that, Joss. If you want to try to claw yourself back from this, you needed to have taken it a little bit more serious than what it appears you did. Yeah. Be interesting to see where his career goes. I mean, the guy will have a career. His career's not dried up. As I said, I've worked with, I've met people who I absolutely admire. The work I love. Met them as a person. I couldn't abide them. Couldn't abide them. Doesn't stop me liking their work. But in, in real life, yeah, it's it's you know we're all people, but yeah, we thought we'd mention this. Is that the news, Andy? No. Well, we've got some Stephen King news. Oh, of course, it's it's the the film file. There's bound to be some Stephen <laughs> King news. So his novel Billy Summers is getting a limited series adaptation from J.J. Abrams's Bad Robot Productions. Uh, for those who've never read Billy Summers, I'm just about to actually. It's on my uh, it's on my list of next books to read. He's a hitman nearing retirement who takes one last highly lucrative job to feather his nest. That job, he embeds himself as an aspiring writer in a quiet town ahead of a planned assassination for a mob hitman before he goes to trial and rats out his employers, and things soon go very wrong. And also on the Stephen King projects, The Boogeyman. The short story from his Night Shift collection. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought I recognised that one. Is being adapted by 20th Century Studios and Hulu and has cast Sophie Thatcher from uh, the, the big phenomenon at the moment, Yellow Jackets, and Chris oh, Messina watch from that. Birds I'll of just, Play. Just stop you there. I, I, it's high on my list to watch Yellow Jackets. I've heard so much about it. Yeah. It's one of them that just kind of slipped under my radar, but now everyone's talking about it. It's like, how have I missed this? And Chris Messina from Birds of Prey are going to lead it. The short story was one of the 20 in King's most famous short stories collection, Night Shift. It's a great short stories collection. It really is. And it follows a man who visits a psychiatrist and recounts how each of his three toddler children over over the years was killed in their cribs by a sadistic presence that has been following him. Uh, this new take is going to follow a teenage girl and her little brother who find themselves plagued by a dark presence in their house and struggle to get their grieving and recently widowed father to pay attention. So it's being shown from the point of view of the children of the father for this one. Um, Mark Heyman, who penned Black Swan, has done the script for this. And Akela Cooper, uh, Malignant, and Scott Beck and Brian Woods, A Quiet Place, are also contributing to the project. Yep, always in for some king, as you know. So... Lots of King, lots of King our way at this point in time. And sticking with horror, Bess Ross, um, who gave us Ghostbusters and Murder in the First, will round out the cast of Chris McKay's monster movie, Renfield, at Universal yeah, Pictures. Yeah, looking forward to this one. Uh, Bess is going to play Caitlin, a member of the support group for people in toxic relationships, uh, joining a cast that includes Nicholas Holt, Nicholas Cage, Aquafina, Ben Schwartz, Adrian Martinez, and Shorey Agadashu. Ryan Ridley, who gave us Rick and Morty, penned the script, which centres on Renfield, the deranged acolyte who's grown sick and tired of his centuries as Dracula's lackey. And it's a nice, comical take on the whole Dracula storyline. I'm interested because Ryan Ridley, Rick and Morty, if you can bring that level of humour to Dracula, what can go wrong? And Nicolas Cage is Dracula. Let's just, let's just end that one there. I don't think he needs any <laughs> follow-up. Nicolas Cage as Dracula. And if that's not enough horror... You're filling my bucket of blood. Well, this horror is not really the film is going to be a horror, but it's got it's a horror that it's getting made. So the up, look, upcoming Jurassic World Dominion, which is set to conclude the World and Park series, doesn't mean they plan to stop. No, they're already drawing up plans to continue the Jurassic series further and further and further. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the audible sigh. The audible sigh. So I think on that note, we shall just round off the news by saying... 
stop watching bad dinosaur films, people, and they'll stop making bad dinosaur films. I, I may be being a bit too negative. May, maybe Dominion might be a great might little rounding back. off for the whole thing. It is bringing back the old cast, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. So maybe having the old faces back, hopefully for, for more than just a cameo, which is what we got Goldblum for in the last one, and it was sold the whole film on him being in there, and it was like, you're on it for half a minute. But I'm not confident. We'll see when it lands anyway. And that is the news. You're listening to The Film File, your favourite film show podcast. Well, the one that you're listening to right now anyway. If you're a fan of this particular episode and it's your first time, why not head over to your favourite podcast platform and find The Film File. Hit that subscribe button and remember to leave a dirty, great big like just for us because... Who doesn't like a like? If you want to know more about the film file, well, that's easy to do as well. All you have to do is this. Head on over to Twitter. You can follow us at Film File UK. Head on over to other social media channels. I'm not very active at this point in time on some of them, but don't let that hold you back from following us anyway for when suddenly you have a burst of inspiration. Uh, TikTok, Facebook, whatever, Instagram. Just look for Film File UK. Carrier pigeon. We've not got a carrier pigeon yet, but we can arrange that as well at some point. Film file yeah, carrier I'll, pigeon for you old I'll go. Files. I'll go and get one and I'll paint the logo on the side and we'll <laughs> send it around the country. And if you see it, you can tag a message to it. You can also get in touch with us via email with any any comments at all, thoughts, suggestions, films you want us to talk about, thing, films that we've spoken about that you disagree with us or agree with us on. You've got a different point of view. Or maybe if you work within the industry and want to contribute towards the show get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. We certainly would. That's podcast at filmfile.uk. And remember, if you're listening on a Samsung device, swipe right, go to Samsung Podcasts, add us into there, straight to your device. It's now time for this week's deep dive in which Andy and I, well, take a deep dive into classic movies, movies we like. Some of us are talking about movies that we've missed, but neither of us missed this came out in 1993. It was one of the early Quentin Tarantino movies to be directed by another director, not by himself, that along with Natural Born Killers. True Romance, directed by Tony Scott, featured an ensemble cast led by Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, with Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, and in a scene-stealing move as ever, Christopher Walken. Slater and Arquette portray newlyweds on the run from the Mafia after stealing a shipment of drugs. The film, as I said, was an early script by Tarantino, which he would sell the screenplay for the film after the success of his debut feature, Reservoir Dogs. It's regarded by many as a proponent as cross-section of writer and director's respective individual trademarks, including a Southern California setting, pop cultural references galore, ultra-stylized violence, punctuated by Tony Scott's use of slow motion. Even though it was praised by critics, especially for its dialogue, characters and offbeat style, the film was initially a box office dud. But positive receptions earned it that cool thing that all great movies should do after they've not found their audience. Give it a cult following. It's coming out again for Valentine's Day. Let's talk about True Romance. A con man. Ask him if he got the letter. Did you get the letter? What letter? No con, tell him we gotta go. A call girl. You call for a day? Huh? Ah! I'm Alabama. Oh. 
She four alarm fire or what? She seems very nice. What are you doing in LA anyway, huh? And a suitcase full of trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Dennis Harper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken. Slow it down, man. In a Tony Scott film. I think what you did, I think what you did was so romantic. Not since Barney and Clyde have two people been so good at being bad. True Romance. So I saw this upon its initial release and all right-minded people did the same and fell in love with it. We fell in love with Alabama and Clarence. We fell in love with the constant pop culture references. We fell in love with Clarence's fascination with Elvis. It had all the best elements of Tarantino. Cool dialogue, pop culture references, of course, and a great sense of coolness. But it also worked because it had Tony Scott at the top of his game. Tony Scott, for some reason, I think, always fell into the shadow of his older brother, Ridley, who was more seen the serious filmmaker, while Tony had a tendency to do the more, I don't know, lighter, throwaway box office movies. But this was a perfect balancing act between Tarantino's style and what would go on to be kind of Tony Scott's erratic film directing style. He owned uh, with such other films like Domino after this one. In many ways, this is the film that Tarantino should never have made because I don't think he could have brought anything to the party better than Tony Scott did. It was a sad loss when Tony Scott unfortunately took his own life, but he left a great legacy of work. And boy, did he leave us a great Tarantino movie. He left us true romance. Love it. Absolutely love it. It is, in just in essence, a cool movie. Andy, I know you agree with me. Please agree with me. Yeah, I like you, I saw this on its initial cinema release. Uh, me and my housemate and one of my uni buddies, I all went to see it at the same time. And I then watched it another three times before it came off the cinemas because I just fell in love with it. Like you say, you, you fall in love with Slater as Clarence. You fall in love with Arquette as Alabama. You can't help but fall in love with the dialogue because this is a Tarantino dialogue-driven film. There's long extended discussions about Kung Fu movies, comic books and um, pop culture. But it's without that sometimes indulgent streak that overburdens Tarantino because Tony Scott in bringing it to the screen has decided that whilst this bit works, let's stop the speech at that point because it's dragging on a bit. And like you say, Tony Scott's style that he brings to films it, it was generally like the the generic blockbusters and he, he used to go for dis, different like camera trickery, particularly in the latter part of his career after True Romance. But True Romance was where he honed his abilities beautifully to really deliver the story in every manner that it needed to be. It's Clarence, played by Slater, a kung fu loving worker in a comic book store. Let's be honest. What, <laughs> we've spoken about comic book movies. We've spoken about our love of kung fu movies. Of course, me and Lee fell in love with this character because he was us. Yeah. He was us. We are, we could relate to every aspect of them the nervousness around people, the uncertainty. And the, yeah, then he falls in love with Alabama, who he thinks is just a perfect, like, love at first sight, only to find out that she's a call girl that has been hired by his boss. 
And we all wanted a boss who would hire us a call girl like Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we all live in the real world. And that's where the story all goes from. And that's when you start getting introduced to the myriad of support characters. Gary Oldman's Drexel is in the film for minutes, mere minutes. But boy, does he throw everything into those minutes as well, as he's described it, he was presented with the idea of playing a white man who thinks he's a black man dealing drugs. And like, even without seeing the script, Gary Oldman was like, I'm doing that and signed up there and then. And then you've got, you've mentioned Walken's scene stealing. But, you know, it's interesting to say that Walken stole his scene as the mob boss. But the scene that he really steals everything from the film from, he's stealing it with the help of Dennis Hopper's character. Yeah, you've got, you've got to have a great actor playing off that kind of a speech to make it as iconic as it is. The pair of them sizzling on screen together as it goes through the whole dialogue of the interrogation, then getting flipped round to Hopper regaling Walken's mob boss with the origin story of the Sicilian nationalities, pushing him to the edge to anger him, to kill him, before he can give away any details that he's been interrogated for. And it's a scene that's not just an example of how great Tarantino's writing can be. I mean, Tarantino cites it in interviews as one of his proudest moments of screenwriting. But it's also how Scott's usually flashy direction can rein itself back in and hone in to create a tension. In what, yeah, my memories of it always never quite live up to watching it again. But it's just basically those two presences in a darkened room and it's intense, and it builds like a distant rumble of thunder. It's beautifully shot. It's marvellously crafted. And the whole film, you get to that point in the film, and you realise you're not just watching a throwaway piece of entertainment. You're watching something special. I, I think you're right. I mean, it is, as I said earlier, that that the, the savvy script work of, of Tarantino with uh, Tony Scott at the top of his game. And initially, uh, and uh, as you know, Tarantino produced a lot of scripts that still haven't been made that he intended to direct and he intended to direct this one. If you ever get a chance to read the original Tarantino version of this, the original script, he does it non-linear. It's, it's choppy. It's all over the place and, and kind of works. There was a, a rumor that he wasn't happy and opposed uh, Tony Scott's decision to, to change the ending, uh, which Scott maintained was his own uh, volition, not the studio saying it. He just fell in love with those two characters and didn't want to see mm-hmm. them die as one of the characters doesn't make it at the end of the original uh, the original script. So Tarantino kind of went along with it and think it's, now believes it to be, a, to be a great film. And Scott just brought a, a beauty to it, a, a style to it that I don't think Tarantino would have had as a filmmaker way back then. As you said, it's beautifully composed, looks great, has all the right elements. It has, it captures that, that essence of, of Hollywood where the, where the film goes towards the end. It's vibrant. It's a bit grisly in places. It's got a, a little bit of a throwback to Badlands and it's got the kind of road movie element to it. It just, it just works. Uh, it's one of those, those perfect little films. And it is a little film to a degree. Um, one of those where everything just fits together absolutely perfectly and in the right components in the right place with the right cast and um, those who've seen it just love it and continue to love it. For those who are out there who are Quentin Tarantino affectionados, 
Uh, you will have you will notice when you're watching this film that there are links to the overall Tarantino verse abound throughout the film. Uh, even though Quentin didn't direct it himself, you've got Lee Donowitz played by Saul Rubinek, marvelously played by Saul Rubinek as yeah, like it. Who was basically playing Bill Silver, by the way? Yeah, uh, who's the grandson of Sergeant Donnie Donowitz from Inglorious Bastards, and in Reservoir Dogs, Mister White refers to a girl he worked with called Alabama. And that's the Alabama of this story. Because Tarantino likes to seed little continuity links between all of his films. Everything is linked in one way or another. This was no exception, even though someone else made it. I mean, even the other Tarantino screenplay that made it into another director's hand around about the same time, Natural Born Killers, has those links to the overall Tarantino verse with names of characters being referenced. Whereas Natural Born Killers... That was turned into a hyperactive satire of media obsession by Oliver Stone, and I think doesn't quite gel as well as True Romance does as a result. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I mean, I think it's worth at some point in the future, in a future show talking about natural born killers. Um, yeah. You've got to talk about um, True Romance and mention the cast because we talked about the top layer cast, but you've also got Brad Pitt in this yeah. as a stoner, and you've got. In, in a brief role, but boy, he comes in in, in like a truck. James Gandolfini, yeah. pre The Sopranos, who's just absolutely amazing, vicious and sadistic. And yet we understand what this character's about and that, that to some extent he's got heart. It's it, for somebody as, as like a lot of the, this cast are, are on screen for a very short amount of time. Like Gary Oldman, they, they make the characters their own. And I don't know whether that's down to the writing or it's down to uh, Tony Scott giving them the ability to to really stand out. Um, I can't wait to see this again on the big screen because I think it is. While I've seen it on on TV and I've seen it on DVD, it's it's a it's a big screen movie. It's 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 a yeah. joyous occasion when you get to see it on the screen because it, it it's it's vibrant. It's not a dark looking movie for a dark subject. It's a bright film and needs to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to mention, before we round off this uh, love of true romance, the score by Zimmer. Yes. But again, uh, part of that essence back to uh, uh, Badlands again, where he takes takes one of the themes from Badlands. It's a beautiful score. It's catchy. It sticks in your head. And even as I'm talking about it now, I can hear it playing in my mind. It's one one of my favourite Zimmer scores. I'm not normally a lover of Zimmer's scores. I find some of them are overblown, a bit too, I don't know, Bombastic. rambunctious. Yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to things like this and the recent Dune score, he does something so creative and so different, but that fits well with the story that's being told that he just shows me why his name is so present across so many films. Yeah. Absolutely marvellous score. It's one of those score soundtracks that is worth purchasing and re-listening to. Great film. I, I rewatched it on Blu-ray last week in preparation for the show. I really do want to watch it on the big screen again. And Don't I feel that I might find an excuse to do so with the limited release that it's got over this next week. So as Andy said, you can catch it at the cinema, but you can also pick it up as a two disc DVD and Blu-ray set. Yes, that's true romance. OK, it's now time for some reviews. So Andy's been to the cinema. As I mentioned earlier, I got to see uh, the very wonderful Belfast. Andy, what are you going to be talking about? 
I'm going to be talking, first of all, I'll start off with Moonfall, shall I? <laughs> Why not? I, I kind of had the intentions to want to see this, and as more and more trailers got released, I kind of, kind of didn't. <laughs> um, I got a bit of a love-hate relationship with Roland Emmerich. I, he is this generation's Irwin Allen. For those who don't know who Irwin Allen is, shame on you, but he was seen as the master of disaster and did big-budget disaster movies. I think Roland Emmerich, for me, is the kind of guy who comes up with a great idea but can't see it through and pads out all of his films. And he pads them out with usually melodrama. So you get a great idea. And and I'm also looking at you, Independence Day and uh, Stargate. They are a great first act because, boy, he throws everything at you for that first act. Midlight. It's usually melodrama and then comes back with an interesting finale. Not all the time, but that's kind of his shtick. Uh, he makes trash and, and, you know, and he makes admirable trash. And we all love a great bit of trash. He knows how to throw spectacle on the screen. I just don't think he's a great storyteller. And from what I've seen about Moonfall, Andy, am I right? Is this trash? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking discovery. I needed to get me in touch with NASA. Well, NASA and I aren't really on speaking terms. No crazy! Don't ask. It's highly likely our moon is built by aliens. Excuse me. I told you not to ask. We're planning to attack this thing. Pseudo. I have debilitating anxiety. This is gonna be close! Moonfall. It theaters February 4th. The moon is shifting its orbit and drawing closer to Earth on a collision course. However, one man thinks he knows the real reason for the shift. The moon is an artificial construct with an energy source in the middle, and something has taken control of it and is using it to destroy the planet. Roland Emmerich has spent pretty much his whole movie career determined to destroy mankind in fiery explosions or death raining from the sky, so it was only a matter of time before he threw the moon at us. And the spectacle is pretty impressive effects-wise. We see the usual devastation, tidal shifts and some sumptuous moments of the moon ploughing through the skies, ripping the ground away beneath it thanks to the immense gravitational forces it's exerting as it gets closer and closer. But, and here's a problem that many of Emmerich's films have had in the past decade and a half, despite the presence of usually decent actors in starring roles, everyone just feels kind of like an archetypical bland template. You see, each and every one of these characters we've seen before, and by this point, it is getting harder and harder to care about the estranged family, the nervous, unrecognised genius, or the shoehorned-in support character who adds nothing to the film, but is clearly there to round off diversity. When you throw in a blink-and-you'll-miss-him-short cameo from Donald Sutherland, in the end, you have a cast of characters that are supposed to give you some heart to latch onto, but you more find that you can't wait for them to be put in peril again so that something exciting might happen. The melodrama just bogs down what could have just been a 90-minute entertaining film. Instead, it's over 90 minutes. For the first hour, the events were moderately, if somewhat generically entertaining. But as it hit the one-hour mark, the film outstayed its welcome. And by the time another hour had passed and it got to the final act, and it almost at one point thought it was the abyss, Things just got extremely preposterous. By the time the end credits rolled, I was numbed into submission, 
taking the positive mindset that the film had now reset my blockbuster expectations so much that even Morbius looks more appealing as a result. On the Emmerich scale, I place it around the same point as 2012, a film that I did not enjoy, especially seems though it utilised the same airplane taking off from a crumbling runway sequence three times. And it's definitely preferable to Independence Day Resurgence. But if Independence Day Resurgence is your bar for quality, then even the greatest limbo dancer would struggle to get beneath that. So it sounds to me like everything I dislike in a Roland Emmerich film, this has got. Yeah. And I'm not um, I'm I'm not snobbish. I do like a I do like a bit of great popcorn trash, but it just sounds like all the weaker points. You know, check out Day After Tomorrow, which is uh, which I think is his best films because it's consistent. But he he's he's good at spectacle, but he then falls on 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 cliché CZ movie uh, uh, drama to keep the whole thing going because he can't generate enough of a of a story around the one great idea. And then it all sort of falls apart. Anyway, the other film you're going to talk about, again, have absolutely zero interest in, as have had absolutely zero interest in the previous Jackass movies. <laughs> so, yeah, from spectacle to testicle, uh, Jackass forever. Gee, didn't set myself up for failure on this one. Aaron, please relax. A bear. That was Knoxville's idea. Dude. That was not my idea. Oh, Aaron, it was great footage. <laughs> I, I got to get out of this, this thing somehow. This and you're putting honey on me and salmon? Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> oh my God. You asked for that with wearing that shirt. That shirt is so perfect. So many books, so little time. <laughs> so good. The bear, when we were filming it though, I was like, this is getting too gnarly. Like, did, did you see it try to call bite it my hand? Yeah. The best is, like, it almost bites his hand. It, it almost bites his hand. Yeah. And we're like trying to make the judgment. Do we call it? No, because right away then the bear went for his penis. Oh. Dude. Oh, I, <laughs> so we're like, oh, let's see what happens now. Oh, God. So as the warning logo came up, I wondered. Despite the fact I'm a fan of the series and of the films to date, whether or not the guys could pull it off again, surely we've seen it all by now. And maybe, just maybe, it was time they gave it all up. I mean, it's been a decade since the last film came out. The world's moved on, yeah? Three minutes later, I was erupting with laughter at a cockzilla attack on a city. And from that point, I was in. Yes, there is repetition as the gang go back to some old stunts and take a new approach. And yes, there's a lot of damage being done to genitalia throughout. But the fun the team have making these stupid stunts really carries well. And it's impossible, particularly as a fan, to not laugh along with them. As Aaron once more cries out for Jeff Tremaine to stop the prank now. Happens so much in the film. And each time you're in hysterics. Some of the new gags are absolutely priceless. There's a Silence of the Lambs-themed darkroom scare that left me crying with laughter, and the new additions to the team are fitting in well. As with previous entries, there's so much packed in that some moments don't quite land, but all in all, you find the structure of the film keeps making sure it comes back to something hilariously creative from time to time to make sure that the short runtime never sags. Clearly, if you've never been a fan, then there's nothing here for you. However, if you know the running joke about how Lance is a cameraman with the weaker stomach definitely filming the wrong things, or how Danger Aaron seems to be the butt of a lot of the pranks, then buckle up and get ready for another fun ride with the gang. So I, I guess I'm just not the guy for Jackass. 
but I know the amount of people who love Jackass, clearly there's an audience for this. Yeah. I've been doing a bit of a TV catch-up over the last week. I'm just going to mention that it landed this week on Amazon Prime, all seven episodes, and that's Reacher, based on the Lee Childs book. Now, I've only read one Lee Childs Reacher book, so I've got a bit of a uh, an understanding of the character. I think that they're, they're quite entertaining novels, but they've got a huge, huge fan base. So basically, Jack Reacher, played by a giant of a man, Alan Richardson, if you remember the Titans TV series he played, Hawk, is an ex-military police investigator, and the character is a giant of a man. If you saw Jack Reacher, the Tom Cruise movie, then you realise that Tom Cruise... <laughs> is not a giant of a man. And that's kind of what upset the fans about the movie. Now, I think Jack Reacher, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, is an excellent thriller. It's got a real 70s throwback vibe to it. I think it's a great Christopher McQuarrie film. If it wasn't called Jack Reacher, it wouldn't have mattered. I didn't know who the character was at that particular point. But he's not the ex-military police uh, major turned drifter uh, and he wasn't six foot five with 250 pounds of muscle as described in Lee Charles's novels quite the opposite really but I do think it's a great action thriller this of course is now closer to the vision and so therefore for fans the physical presence that Alan Richardson brings to it captures that character so the plot Jack Reacher as he does in the novel arrives in Margrave Georgia he's arrested for the murder he didn't commit and while he works to prove his innocence, he teams up with uh, two local cops, Finley and Roscoe, to unravel a huge and rather dangerous criminal conspiracy. This is good fun, over seven episodes. Now, I'm not a big binger, but I did binge this because it is exactly like the book, uh, an, an easy read. Uh, Richardson really does resemble. He's the right mix of physical presence to bring Child's character to life. He's a giant of a man. Reacher doesn't talk a lot as he does in the book. This character doesn't talk a lot. I don't think Richardson's a great actor, but he doesn't need to be in this because it's his physical presence that uh, uh, that they get right. So if you want something that's downright violent on Amazon Prime, and he is pretty violent, and you're a big fan of Child's prose, then this could be the start of a great series with the hope that with each season they adapt another book starts off well doesn't end as strongly as it begins but it is entertaining i've got this on my radar um, once i've worked through a few other things that i've got going on one of the things that i've got going on is uh, will arnott's murderville oh i've heard which about landed that. on netflix which i mentioned last week as something that i was going to you keep did. a lookout for he played he plays detective set terry seattle and each episode is joined by a new guest star partner playing themselves conan o'brien uh, American footballer Marshall Lynch, Kumail Nanjiani, Annie Murphy, Sharon Stone, and Ken Jeong. Six episodes, each episode about a murder that's taken place, and they're interviewing three different suspects. And the guest star has to work out from the clues given who the actual murderer is. But the thing is, the guest stars don't have a script, and they have to improvise around every scenario that they're put in. And it it, it works. It genuinely works. On the first episode with Conan O'Brien, there's moments that Will Arnott is caught off guard and you can see him almost break character as he's, he, he reacts to Conan's witty sides. 
and they're having fun watching it. It's interesting to see them try to solve the case. And you can try to solve the clues yourself as like small little hints are dropped out with each of the suspects that they interrogate in the different surroundings. So it's fun to play along with to see if you can work out who the killer is. But it's so much fun watching some great comic talent play against each other in such a great way. Thoroughly recommend it. Uh, Murderville over on Netflix. I'm sticking with Netflix for uh, a series that's been out for some time and I'd heard good things about it. I'm a bit of a fan of Mike Flanagan. Uh, Mike Flanagan brought us uh, Doctor Sleep. He also brought us a good adaptation of Stephen King's Gerald's Game. He also brought us uh, The Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor. I thought Haunting of Hill House was very good. Bly Manor suffered from uh, trying to set something in England when clearly it wasn't for me. So he's proven himself to be the master of good long-form TV horror. Uh, this bears no narrative relation to either of those past series, but it is, in all essence, a Mike Flanagan series. So the story centers around a recovering alcoholic uh, and an altar boy turned atheist, Riley, played by Zach Guilford, who returns to an isolated island community of Crockett Island, population of about 100 odd. And it's one of those islands where the fishing industry, which it's been reliant upon, is starting to fall apart. And therefore, the population is starting to decrease. He's released from prison after a a drink driving incident. And once he returns back to the island, a mysterious new priest, Father Paul, played fantastically by Legion's Hamish Linklater, arrives and apparently starts performing miracles. Doesn't take long before you get to recognize that this is an occasional and if not sometimes verbose satire on religion especially Catholicism bearing the brunt of Mike Flanagan's scrutiny. So it's a very personal project. And the, the story and the characters cover the, a, a kind of full spectrum of belief from the self-righteously pious to uh, committed atheists and not forgetting those of, of a different faith, in particular the local town sheriff who's a Muslim, played by Bly Manor's Rahul Kahili, who is, is absolutely stunning in this. So the story initially circles how each of the individuals responds to these apparent new abilities from the priest. And then it kind of goes into uh, uh, Stephen King territory. And it reminded me an awful lot of Stephen King's Salem Lot, is because some of these miracles, are they the work of, of God or, or something slightly more demonic? It's, it's very slow. It's very, very talky. And, and Mike Flanagan isn't afraid of letting his characters have these huge, huge monologues, which can be off-putting. But the first three episodes build in a nicely reassured way before the last two episodes in which he basically lets the horror out of the bag. So it's not the kind of horror series which is literally going to grab you by the throat in the first two episodes. It's one of those that you do have to take your time on because it's a it's a thoughtful analysis on horror and religion and and that's midnight mass on netflix what i'm interested with this is i know that each of the episode titles is uh it's a book of the bible so i know episode one is book one genesis book two psalms book three proverbs right through to book seven revelation which the, the elements of the bible are referred to in that relevant episode and have impact on the plot line 
I've, I've had this on my radar for a while, so I'll probably get round to it on your recommendation from this. Yeah, it's rewarding, but you have to stay with it. Mike Flanagan's delivered um, some good horror, and in particular, he's delivered his essence of King that we've really enjoyed. So I'll I'll give this one a shot. You should. And the last show that we just want to reference is another one that I mentioned last week is one that was uh, creating a buzz, and that's Pam, Pam and Tommy which in the UK landed on Disney+, Plus, which seems a very weird place to put something about a sex tape that got leaked. <laughs> um, Lily James and Sebastian Stan as Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee are absolutely perfect representations of the characters that they're portraying. And who'd have thought Lily James, an English rose, playing the yeah. uh, rather gifted in different physical way, <laughs> Pamela Anderson. Great prosthetics. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, <laughs> boggles yeah. the eyes. Um, it's not the not the only person who's well endowed with well endowed with prosthetics. As uh, Tommy Lee was notorious for um, how how big one of his appendages was, an appendage that he actually spoke with. If you've ever read his own autobiography, his opening chapter is him having a conversation with that particular appendage, and that is represented in episode two. So get ready for to be freaked out by one of the weirdest scenes that you'll see on TV ever. But in general, this. This series draws from a Rolling Stone article which looked at the theft of the tape and the distribution of it and everything behind the scenes. And the series doesn't focus that much on the contents of the tape. That's all peripheral because it's focusing on all the people involved in it getting distributed and how it impacted on the very troubled relationship that Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson had. Um, Seth Rogen plays Rand, the guy who stole the tape. And he's very subdued. The first episode focuses almost purely on him. And it's a very different Seth Rogen than what we're normally used to. And by the third episode, I'm completely hooked on it. And I can't wait to see the last half of this series play out. A load of people are judging it based on its, you know, Pamela Anderson apparently didn't get involved in the production. They tried to ask her to get involved. Lily James tried to contact her to get some lessons on like mannerisms and everything. But she refused to talk. Tommy Lee, on the other hand, was well and truly behind it and absolutely loves Sebastian Stan playing game. He thinks he represents him perfectly. It's it doesn't it doesn't smutify. Yeah, I was going to say that the situation. I've only caught the first episode, and I, I agree. I thought it was it was uh, quite a thoughtful take mm. for those of us old enough to remember a, a media phenomena. Uh, and I, I'm not sure whether it's going to get answered in in later episodes, but I thought. The idea of this this was to land now, would we be as shocked and aghast as we were back in that portion of history? But because of, you know, the early days of, of, of the World Wide Web as it was within the, that, and it gets mentioned, but would it be just a storm in a teacup now? Would it have been over by the next news cycle? Well, in order to get something of a similar kind of impact... We had to have multiple celebrity sex tapes getting released about four years ago in yeah. what was notoriously known as the Fappening. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that title, but I do like it. <laughs> and yeah, that was like because pretty much everyone who had something, it all dropped at the same time. But you needed that. Whereas back then, this is early days of the internet, one celebrity sex tape getting released online was huge, huge news. It's interesting the way that they're approaching it. It is interesting to see the the characters of Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee developing, and episode two in particular really focuses on their relationship. And then episode three flips back to Rand Moore, and I'm expecting it to do similar as it goes forward. It's got to bounce between the two. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's a lot better than what I was expecting. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm only one episode in, but I, I thought it was was really well done. 
Anyway, what have we got coming out at the cinema? That's what's happening on TV. What can we expect in the next couple of weeks, Andy? Well, this weekend at cinemas, there's Uncharted, which we've been really looking forward to. We'll be reviewing that next week. And we've also got Death on the Nile, which has been long, long overdue. But finally, we get to see and work out who the killer is. I kind of already know who it was because uh, I've seen multiple adaptations, but it's not going to stop me watching this lavish new production of it. Over on TV, uh, on Now TV and Sky, the TV series Bel Air will drop this week. Over on Disney Plus, we'll get another chance to see French Dispatch this week as that lands. You know how much I love French Dispatch and I can't wait to see it again. I've just gone, actually went back and watched uh, Isle of Dogs the other week because I'd only only seen that the once. And uh, boy, it's so well worth revisiting and I can't wait to revisit French Dispatch. Apple TV sees the sky is everywhere land. But the most interesting film that's landing on streaming for me this week is Big Bug. It's a return to filmmaking for Jean-Pierre Junet, who gave us some of my favourite films of French cinema, Delicatessen, City of Lost Children. Yeah, me too. I'm way up for that one. So that's about it for this week's episode of The Film File. But of course, before we go, and you'd miss it if we didn't do it, is our neat things. Things in which Andy and I have seen, watched, played, enjoyed. It doesn't matter as long as it's our neat thing. Andy, what's your neat thing? So, my neat thing this week, and I'm sticking with a theme here because it's video games again. I'm doing a lot of video games recently. But over this past week, Humble Bundle did a deal that I had to pick up because I've had my eye on these games for a while. The Myst series of games. For those who don't know, the first Myst game was a graphical adventure created by the Miller brothers, Robin and Rand, using their Cyan Inc. game company in 1993. It was a graphical adventure that threw you into a curious puzzle island, and it was notorious for properly drop your, dropping you in it and giving you no clues, and you had to try to find the cryptic little suggestions that guide you around the island until you find two books with pages ripped out, and inside the books you communicate with one of two brothers, Cyrus and Archinar, who both ask you to find the missing pages to free them from their exiles, but not to trust the other brother because they're out to cause trouble. The game had multiple endings, depending on which brother you trusted or if you trusted either of them at all. And it threw you into different worlds via portals from books. And whilst the fixed screen approach belies the age of that game, it wasn't like you couldn't turn around in real time. It was literally you click and it moves to the next location. Next location. It was compelling. The puzzles were clever. And the depth of immersion of the story, for those who are lovers of like reading every bit of scripting that a game gives, there was so much to revel in in this game. And it was followed by five sequels, Riven, Exile, Uru, Revelation, and End of Ages. And each one built upon the lore, the mythologies, and this rivalry between the two brothers. Humble Bundle did a deal on all the series this week. So I've picked up the whole lot of them. Now, in the past, I've played the first three games, Myst, Riven, and Exile. I'd never got round to playing the last few. So I am slowly working through the whole series from scratch. And going back to Myst, bearing in mind it was 1993 it first came out. So it's at least two and a half decades since I last played it. I can't remember how to do any of the puzzles. <laughs> so I am still as lost as I was at the start of them. But it's one of those that whilst you can spend an hour or so completely lost when you first start playing and go, what am I supposed to do here? Once you start to get the level of the puzzles, connectivities in there, it all starts to become fluid from that point. I want you to go, ah, maybe if I flip that switch there, that switch there, that's going to relate to that. And 
you you get into a, a pattern. So I'm halfway through the first game now, and I'm ready to just like rattle through this and get onto exile. Can't wait, cannot wait. Absolutely loving it. The Mist series. If the Humble Bundle is still running at the moment, it's only running for another week. So if you've got chance, get this snagged up. It's only about ten pounds, and you get all the games plus a few other graphical adventures thrown in for good measure. Well worth picking up. Okay, I've got a bit of an odd, neat thing this week. You mentioned your neat thing last week was the Book of Boba Fett. Anyway, I'm going to mention the Book of Mandalorian. Sorry, no, I'm going to mention the Book of Boba Fett <laughs> this week. You know, say what you will about this series, uh, quality-wise, and because I think it's all over the place. I really, really do. You can't fail to mention the uh, the fan service it's playing. I mean, every cameo in the kitchen sink was in this particular episode. But I'm not going to discuss the storyline because I'm I'm kind of that's not my neat thing. My neat thing was seeing young Luke Skywalker and how brilliantly it was done, and how the effects that people kind of criticised at the end of uh, of that episode of of the Mandalorian is just now being perfected by some absolute special effects CGI magic in bringing us a younger post-Return of the Jedi, Luke Skywalker. Not just that one appearance that, that he made and just basically walked onto ship and, and dropped, dropped the hood. This has been an interactive character. And I thought it was one of those, nowadays, few special effects sequences that took my breath away because it felt as though I was watching a young Mark Hamill. Now, I know Mark Hamill revoiced the character and it, it was being digitally manipulated so he would sound younger. And I thought that was excellent. Of course, that's how you were going to do it. And I know that uh, an, an actor, Graham Hamilton, was brought in to flesh out the role. Uh, and he's done so in, in, in games like The Last of Us Part Two and Days, Days Gone. But it was one of those occasions where special effects are absolutely so seamless that you believe. And there's not often now because anything is, is, is almost possible to be done. We, going back to when Superman in, flew in in uh, the original Superman, the movie, you, you had to believe it and it, it, it was uh, breathtaking. The first time you saw uh, the Imperial Cruiser and you it blew your brain in Star Wars, Close Encounters, uh, the Abyss that you mentioned earlier. There are moments that make you go, wow. But we've kind of in an age now where we can, if we, if we dream it, we can, we can see it. And we believe it. But there aren't many moments where you are absolutely gobsmacked. And I was gobsmacked by by that effect. And, and, it, and it blew my brain. I I was amazed at watching and believing I was watching uh, a, a young Luke Skywalker again. I thought it was absolutely, absolutely awesome. My thoughts on, on Book of Boba Fett don't match that one particular effect because I don't know where the series is going. And as I said, I think it's a bit all over, over the place. But I thought my neat thing for this week had to be the amazing and also remember tv budget it's not a movie this is for tv special effect of seeing the young luke skywalker i thought was unbelievable in the same episode can i also just mention the introduction of cad bane to live action yeah a character i didn't really follow the uh, the clone wars series but i know it's such a it's a really big deal his introduction had a very lee van cleef yeah good, the bad and the ugly kind of approach to it. It was so perfectly Western and it, it just conveyed every, you know, even if you'd never seen the animated shows, 
that he's been in. You got everything you needed to know about that character from that introduction. Yeah. I mean, it was it was an utter fan service this episode. Yeah, and absolutely nothing to do with Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm I'm having problems with the series. I I, I think it's lost direction, and uh, the fact it's not been in for two episodes. I think that they didn't have enough story to make a full series, and they like to do their seven or eight episode seasons. So I think they've deliberately just padded it out with backdoor pilots for everyone else. Yeah, yeah, it, it it's it's lost track of what it's what it's about. And and I think it's suffering for it. And my enjoyment of the series is 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 starting to wane. I've got to be honest. But I just I had I was so knocked out by that mm. effect. I thought it was incredible. Yeah. I had to stop it, go on to IMDb, and and just check that it was Mark Hamill because it's boy. I mean the the, the sound work alone was, was phenomenal. Yeah. That's it for this week. We'll be back again with another show next week. Anything planned for the next week? We're going to meet up to watch on. Uncharted. We're going to meet up this week to watch Uncharted. But um, other than that, have yourself a great week, Andy. Yeah, I intend to. I mean, with Uncharted, and finally we're getting Death on the Nile releasing this week. Um, it feels like it feels like life has come back to the world. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun week ahead of us as we uh, get ready to prepare for the build-up to Batman in only a matter of a few weeks. Yeah, can't wait. So hey, get some beer and some cleaning products. 